Welcome back, everybody. Thanks for joining. On this episode, it's been obviously a very busy news week. We have Biden beating Trump. That's the headline story. That's the biggest news. Now, I know you've been blasted with politics for the past week. I don't plan on reiterating everything that's been said and every opinion and everything like that. But I do want to talk about the elections, especially going forward. What I see is going to happen with investors. I'm going to give my thoughts on how I think we should view the market. We also had some big news outside of politics that happened the past week, but of course it got buried because of the elections going on. The stock market, for one, had an incredible week. It was on fire. It went up 7%. The S&P 500 was up 7.3% in the last five days. That is an incredible week. One of the best we've had all year long. Now, I don't mean to say I told you so, but my video one week ago said why I'm buying, and I gave my thoughts on the market and how I thought, that eliminating the election outcome as a a negative catalyst, as something unknown, would make it so investors can breathe a little bit easier. And I have more thoughts on this going forward. I think overall right now, we are in the early stages of a bull run. Even with this huge run-up that we've had in 2020, I still think we're just getting started with it. So I'm going to explain my thoughts on the market going forward and how I plan on investing and taking advantage of it. Now, with that in mind, I will be going over my portfolio in depth. We're going to be going over every single company, and I'm going to give my rating on whether I think it's a strong company to own or a weak one. And I'm even going to be looking at a couple that I might be selling out of over the next week. So we'll be talking about that as well. And then, of course, at the end of this episode, we have a lot of emails and questions to get to as well. Now, we have a busy episode, lots to get to. Before jumping into all of that, check out the Patreon. You can join now for free, and you can get until the end of the month for free. So you have a trial period. There's no risk. It's cancel anytime. You're not locked in anything. If you join, you get access to exclusive episodes, a Discord community, as well as a dividend tracking website. It's a portfolio analysis and dividend tracking website. You get all of that included. So it's six bucks a month. You can try it out for like three weeks for free. There's a link in the description if you want to give that a shot. Okay, let's jump in and get to the headline news. Biden beat Trump. It's not like officially called right now. There's still some lawsuits. Trump really hasn't conceded. So there's a chance that things could flip, but I really don't think that that's going to happen. All the major news networks have called the win for Biden. It looks like it's not something that's going to be turned around. So as it stands right now, Biden has beat Trump, but it doesn't look like the Democrats have made gains everywhere. Republicans made some pretty significant gains in the House, flipping eight seats. That's a five net gain. So that was a win for Republicans in the House. Democrats still will hold the majority. And then in the Senate, Republicans have also defended key seats, not letting the Democrats take over the Senate so far. There's still an unknown with this outcome, but as it stands right now, Republicans still hold the advantage in keeping control of the Senate. So this is something that we can look at as a positive for investors. If you put all the politics to the side, everybody wants their side to take control of everything. But if we put that to the side for a minute, most of the time investors like having certainty. The more unknowns, the more uncertainty, the less investors like that. So when we see Biden winning, but we also see Republicans taking some control of the House and also maybe keeping control of the Senate, that creates a split government. And a split government, it's less likely for extreme measures to be taken and extreme bills to be passed on either side. Investors view that as a positive. Biden will probably be able to push along a lot of his agenda, but not as aggressively as he could if he controlled all three branches of government. So we don't know how this will turn out, but I think investors will view it as a positive if Republicans do keep majority control of the Senate. So that's where we're at right now. The Democrats control the executive branch with Biden being president. The Democrats also remain control of the House, but the Republicans made some major gains in the House. And it looks like Republicans will continue to keep control in the Senate, 
but that's still up for grabs. So we could see the outcome of that flip, but right now it looks like most likely the Senate will remain in Republican control. Overall, this has been received positively for investors. In terms of investing, it's been positively received, but obviously this isn't the outcome that everybody wanted. Now, I want to talk about this for a little bit. I didn't have anything prepared, but I want to share some thoughts on this. I'm 31 years old, and I've been through a few elections, and I noticed some patterns. I noticed the same thing happening over and over again. That is that people get very attached to politics. They get very attached to politicians. They become really invested in politics, in the outcome of it. It becomes almost a part of their identity to be on their political side. And then when their candidate loses, they can become devastated because of it. I see this happening more and more as we have social media and politics is shared more widely. It becomes ingrained in almost every part of our lives. It's very difficult to avoid at this point. But I tweeted out the night before the elections, remember people, there's more to life than politics. It's called money. Now, I said this a little bit tongue-in-cheek. I said it a little bit as a joke. I understand that there's much more important things than money. Your relationships, your health, your family, all those things are more important than money. But when I actually look at this tweet and say that there's more important things to life than politics, your money, I think that there's some truth to that. Politics, you have very little control over. Whoever happens to be president likely isn't decided by you. That's the truth. Everybody tries to vote. We all give our input on the direction of the country. But at the end of the day, we all have very little control over it. Unless you are one of the voters in one of those very specific districts that decided the election, you probably didn't have too much of an impact. On the other hand, Your money and your finances and your investments and your decisions with your career have a substantial impact over the direction of your life, the comforts that you'll have, the stability that you'll have, the stress that you'll have, the environment that you raise your family in. All of that is directly impacted by the amount of wealth that you're able to have. I think that focusing on money is not a selfish thing to do. I think that growing money is an honest endeavor that everybody should try to do. If you can grow wealth in your family, If you can put yourself onto a better financial future, that's something that I think will have a big impact on your life, regardless of who's president. And most of the time, I think that politics is a distraction from doing that. If people focused more on their own wealth, on their own family, getting themselves in a better financial position, it gets you a lot further than knowing all the political issues of the day. So that's what I plan on doing in this episode, is focusing on the money not worrying about the politics, not worrying about who becomes president. If we talk about politics, it's going to be through the lens of how do we use it to further our finances? How do we use it to make more money? And on a second note, I think it's cool to see that in this channel and on this Discord, we have people in this channel that are Republicans, we have people that are Democrats, and we have many people that aren't even Americans. They're in Canada, they're Europeans, they're Asian Pacific countries, they're from all over the place. But all of them have something in common. Everybody wants to have a better financial future. So in my opinion, focusing on money, trying to generate wealth, having a better financial future with more stability, that's something everybody should be doing. So let's talk about how we do that. First of all, I want to give my thoughts going forward on the market in general and the economy. I think that we've had multiple negative factors in the market that have created a lot of uncertainty. One of them, of course, was the elections. Nobody really knew how it was going to play out. Everybody can look back and say that they predicted it, but really nobody knew. When Trump won Florida, I thought, this looks a lot like 2016. He wasn't supposed to win Florida, according to the polls, and here he is winning Florida. So there was a chance that Trump could have won. This created uncertainty. When investors don't know what's going to happen or what the future is, that in and of itself creates some uncertainty. Now that we see things playing out, the people that remained in the market, 
that kept their nerves cool, they're being rewarded. They got rewarded with 7% returns in one week. So that was one negative factor in the market, the elections. I see two more negative factors in the market that still need to play out, and that is the economy and the coronavirus. I see these as the two biggest negative factors, negative catalysts in the market. Right now, one of these is being repaired. The Wall Street Journal reported that employers added 638,000 jobs last month, the six straight monthly gains, and the jobless rate fell to a percentage of 6.9%. So out of the 22 million, we've gained back over half of them. That's some really good progress to have already. And having an unemployment rate of 6.9%, that seems really good to me. We were talking about unemployment rates of 20% just a few months back. So the economy is recovering albeit a little bit slower than some people have predicted or a little bit slower than they wish. But the fact is the economy's recovering. That is one major negative factor in the market and it's steadily improving. The Wall Street Journal reported that the economy overall has rebounded quickly from the recession. Gross domestic output grew at a record of 7.4% in the third quarter. We're at a 33.1% annual rate. So not only are we gaining back more jobs, but the GDP is improving. This is positive news. This is positive data that's being shadowed by the bigger news of the elections. But this is very important nonetheless to have all these people returning back to work and they're getting off of unemployment and they're starting to contribute to the GDP. So when we see this type of news, that's one more negative catalyst that I think will improve over time, making this uncertain environment even less uncertain. The other negative or uncertain factor in the market that I think is making investors wary is the coronavirus. And this is closely related to the economy. The economy is already starting to transition to this new world we have where we work from home. Um, There's a lot of companies that are more like cloud-related and tech-related that are doing really well. But overall, the economy can't completely recover if the coronavirus cases are surging. That just will never happen. We cannot get back to full productivity with this spike in cases. And the cases are going up drastically. We had recent reports of 131,000 cases. That's incredible. That is a huge amount of coronavirus cases in one day. So even though I think we got over one hurdle, which is the elections, and I think that the economy overall is improving, we have another major hurdle to get over. If I put these on the whiteboard, we can see what I think are the negative factors and the positive catalysts. The negative factors are anything that create uncertainty, that create doubt with investors or anxiety, and reasons that people keep their money out of the market. This is the time typically when you actually want to invest, because when times are uncertain, when there's lots of negative factors, that's when the prices are the most depressed on different companies and different holdings that you might be able to buy. This is typically when you get the best deals. Right now, we have a number of things that are causing negative factors. We just went over a couple of them. But we also have things that I think will be positive catalysts. A positive catalyst is anything that will move the market higher. It'll create a more certain environment. It'll make it easier for people to want to buy stocks because they'll feel more comfortable doing it. Under negative factors, we had the elections. We talked about that. The elections, for the most part, are over. So that is one uncertain event that people had a lot of anxiety about. It's mostly over now. On the positive side, we have a split government and we have the uncertainty of the elections being over. This is conditional on Republicans remaining control of the Senate. But I think even if they don't remain control of the Senate, I still think just the fact that the elections are over and the anxiety involved with it is a positive catalyst. Another negative factor we have is the economy. It's been heavily damaged. There's businesses that are readjusting to the new normal. We have the positive catalyst. We were not able to pass an economic stimulus with the elections. I think that that was a direct result of the elections. It makes it harder to negotiate. 
It makes it harder to come to a deal when you have such an important thing coming up with a timeline. My prediction is that it will now be easier to come to an agreement on the economic stimulus. If it doesn't happen until the end of this year, I think it will happen early in next year with a Biden presidency. So we might not see as big of an economic stimulus as we normally would have if the Republicans remain control of the Senate, but I think we'll still see an economic stimulus. And that, of course, is a huge positive catalyst for the markets. People are needing money right now. And when the federal government passes this and disperses that money, that obviously has a huge effect on the markets. And again, the third negative factor, and I think the biggest one that remains is the coronavirus. This is obviously heavily combined with the economy. Like I said, they're kind of interlinked at this point. But the coronavirus is a temporary thing. We will come up with vaccines. We will come up with treatments. Our medical professionals have already done a good job in reducing the lethality of the coronavirus. We're understanding it better. We're treating it better. The death rates are going down. And the vaccine, I think, will be another huge factor in fighting this virus. This is another positive catalyst. So when I look at these side by side, I see the elections being over. And the result of that on the stock market, just getting that over and it's up 7%. I see economic damage that I think is temporary. We're going to have new stimuluses in the future. People are going to find and adapt to new ways of being employed, new ways of doing jobs. They're going to work from home. And I think overall the economy will recover. And then we have the coronavirus, which again, I think is a temporary thing. We'll come out with better therapies and vaccines to be able to fight it in the future. All of these negative factors are temporary. The positive catalysts will happen. And I do not believe the market has fully priced in these positive catalysts. I think that people that invest right now and buy companies right now with these factors still existing will be rewarded for it in the future. So in my opinion, overall, I think that we're still in the early stages of a bull run. I think that as uncertainties get removed over time, the market will continue to move forward and upwards. Now, I could be wrong. This is just speculation. There's a chance we could have another unknown drastic thing happen that brings the market down, but I'm going to stay invested regardless. I think that there's more upside to be had than downside, and I've never been someone that tries to time the market. So my goal is to buy the best companies that I think are situated for this future. Now let's go ahead and go through some of my portfolio. I have 30 different holdings. I plan on going through every one of them. Let's first of all, take a look at the performance. It's a value of $130,000 now. I have $14,000 in gains. Of that, a significant amount has happened from dividends, $5,000. So even though this portfolio went through the March lows, we lost like $16,000 because we were invested in a lot of real estate, we bounced back pretty strong. In the past week, I've made $8,000 in gains. So that's a pretty good week to have. So let me go through each category one by one. We'll go through each sector. I'll give you my opinion on it moving forward. And if I think that this category is strong, and if I think the companies within it are strong. First of all, let's take a look at tech. Tech is my biggest category by far. I have $44,800 in it. I've made $7,000 gains. I've been building this category up steadily over the past few months. One of the realizations that I've made since 2020 is that the coronavirus and the changes that are happening to our economy and to our culture, the work from home, um, the changes with technology and being more reliant on technology to communicate, I think that those trends are around to stay. I think that we might see some reversion back to normalcy when the coronavirus gets dealt with, but a lot of these companies that have succeeded in tech, I think will continue to succeed even in a post-coronavirus world. So I've moved more to these companies because I think we're going to have even further reliance on them in the future. My biggest holding is Apple. In my opinion, Apple has it all. It offers fantastic products that everybody likes. It's doing a heavy push into software, content creation, entertainment, music, movies, fitness software. 
They're going into everything with software and subscriptions while maintaining their vertically integrated line of devices. Apple, I think, is one of the best holdings to have. And as we move to this work from home and communicate from home and educate your kids with technology, all these type of changes that are happening, I think that people will become more reliant on Apple devices and they'll actually spend more and more time on them. Another holding I've introduced to my portfolio is IGV. This is a tech software ETF. It gathers together a lot of tech software companies in the U.S., puts it into an ETF, and then you get broad exposure to them. I wanted to include this in my tech pie to broaden my exposure outside just a couple of companies. So I have some money in this ETF. It pays about the same dividend that MasterCard and Visa does. So it's a low dividend, but these companies grow their dividends aggressively. All these holdings in my tech pie, I feel very confident of. I think they're fantastic holdings to have, and I think that they're going to do really well in the future. So I don't plan on making any changes with these companies. Next up, we have consumer. This is my second largest category in my portfolio. I have a total of $24,700 in it. The gains right now are about $3,600. Disney is one that's my biggest holding in this category. I think that Disney Plus will be an enormous success. That's what I'm counting on. Right now, this company obviously has a lot of struggles. It has a lot of issues it's facing. But as we went over previously, I think that most of the issues it's facing are temporary. And the Disney Plus streaming service is not temporary. That's not going away. I think that they're going to gain a tremendous amount of subscribers very quickly. There's a chance in my mind that they could catch up to Netflix very quickly if they play their cards right. So Disney's one that I'm happy to bet on. Another one of my top holdings is Costco. This is one of my all-time favorite companies in general. I think it's one that it does most things right. It treats its employees right, it treats its customers right, and it treats its shareholders very well. It does all of that at the same time. Not many companies can pull that off. So Costco is one of my favorite holdings. It always seems to trade at a premium. So you're paying up big money when you're buying Costco. You're buying it at a very high PE ratio, more expensive than some of these tech companies. But that's the price you pay for a business model like Costco. So despite the price, I've been continuing to build up my holdings in Costco. If this company comes down in price, I'm not going to complain. I'm going to buy more of the stock. Pepsi's one that's a good company. It doesn't seem to have a tremendous amount of growth. The revenue's pretty flat on it, but it's a steady dividend payer. I think it will continue to give very conservative returns. Pepsi's never going to be a company that I think gives you multiples of your money. So this is not one that I would put as a major holding unless you're wanting a very conservative company. Home Depot and Target are two companies that I think are Amazon proof. They're companies that I think will continue to have success. Comcast is a company that I always like owning because of their media properties. They own NBC, which owns CNBC. They come out with a really good television series. They recently launched Peacock, which I think is going to do really well. It has kind of a freemium model. So this is a company that's a kind of telecom media company. It's not going to give you the biggest returns, but I see this as another very reliable, steady dividend payer that will give you conservative returns. And then Nike's one that I've never put a lot of money in, but this company has impressed me with their ability to go from Amazon, take all of their products off Amazon and still be successful. So I'm going to be building up my holding in Nike as well. All of these companies in consumer, I'm going to continue to add to. I like all of them and I think they're very solid companies going into the future. Next up, we have real estate. This has been the most unfortunate part of my portfolio. This has dragged down the returns. Real estate was not good to own going into 2020. Some residential real estate has still been good, like owning your house. It's probably gone up in value. But in most cases, if you owned any type of commercial real estate, it has not done well in 2020. You can see overall that I have $19,700 total value in this, and I'm down $2,000. And even over the past week, the market went up like 6 or 7% just in the past five days. 
real estate was only up 3.8%. So even with the recovery, real estate continues to be a laggard, continues to underperform. There's not much momentum with it. There's not many positive catalysts. It's just something that's been a continual struggle. So this is the category that I'm considering making some changes. I have four companies in real estate, two of which I think are strong companies and two of which I think are mostly weak companies. Simon Property, which is a shopping mall company, is by far the weakest company in my portfolio. I've gone through and tried to filter out my companies to the strongest ones remaining, and I think that Simon Property is the very weakest. It's a mall REIT in 2020. A lot of people are not going to malls anymore. Most of the malls I see that are very busy are usually filled up with restaurants. Those are the things that everybody wants to rent to. But Simon Property can't fill their entire mall with restaurants. They need to have shopping outlets, and it seems difficult to keep those in business, especially in this environment. This is a holding that I've held since the beginning of my portfolio. I'm currently down $1,700 on it. That's over half of my initial investment. And this is one that I'm heavily considering selling. I know I'll only get $1,800 out of the sale, but I think I might be able to take that capital and put it into other companies that can grow that amount of money faster than Simon Property. This is a company that I think will continue to have struggles for a very long time. It'll take a long time for investors to get back on board with this company. I've also not been impressed with the management. They haven't been transparent. They've been very opaque. Most investors don't know what's going on. We have other companies like Store Capital, where the management is extremely transparent in showing you what they're doing. So there's a lot of characteristics that I've been unimpressed with Simon Property. It's a company that I don't see how it fits with the new normal that well. I think it's going to take significant adjustments from their properties, and that might take years to do. So this is one that I might exit out of, take the money I have, and put it in another opportunity I think will grow this money faster. Well Tower is another one that I'm considering selling. This is a healthcare REIT, and this is another company that I think has very limited growth. It has a lot of struggles ahead of it. These are two companies that the combined sale would provide some capital to be able to build up another investment and a really good dividend-paying company. So I've been considering selling both of these companies. Next up, we have healthcare. This is my fourth biggest sector. I have about $12,000 in it. This is a category that's done okay. I'm up $1,600 in it. I've made some decent returns. I only have two holdings as of now. I've sold out of some companies. And I know there's going to be a lot of people that say, Joseph, you sold out of Johnson & Johnson and Merck and Pfizer and all these different healthcare companies. Why would you sell those great companies? That is true. I sold out of some of my individual holdings in healthcare. I did that for a specific reason. All the holdings that I sold out of in healthcare, I put into a Vanguard healthcare index fund. The top holdings in this fund are J&J and Pfizer and Merck. They're all the same holdings. The reason I move them from individual holdings into a healthcare index fund is because I've been deciding that I want to focus on companies I know the most about and healthcare companies I don't know as much about as other categories. I feel like I can learn the consumers better. I feel like I can learn the technology companies better. The healthcare ones like Pfizer and J&J are mostly out of my scope of competence. So even though I made money on all of those sales and I made a profit, I decided to exit out of them and put that money in an ETF where I don't have to worry about controlling them. The only one that I've continued to hold individually is AbbVie because this is the only healthcare company that I really believe was undervalued at the time. So I didn't want to sell it when it's undervalued. I think there's a story to play out with AbbVie and I think it will gain value over time. So right now my healthcare pie is very simple. It's mostly in a Vanguard healthcare index fund. All the top holdings of this are mostly the holdings I had. And then we have extra exposure to AbbVie, which I think is a stock that's undervalued right now. 
In the finance category, I have $11,500 and I've done something similar. I sold out of a few companies that I didn't really have a strong conviction on and I put that money into an index fund and then I put more money into the companies that I have a strong conviction on. That's JP Morgan and T. Rowe Price. These are, I think, the two best picks in the financial realm outside of just your fintechs like PayPal and Square. Those don't really fit with the strategy I'm doing in this portfolio. But JP Morgan is a pretty big dividend payer. It's a diversified bank. They're competing in fintech with Square. They have a lot of things going for them. I think as the economy recovers that this holding will do really well. And T. Rowe Price is one that's always done well. They're not really a bank. They're a financial institution that helps people with their investments. And so I think this one's going to do well in the future, regardless of the economy. And then Vanguard Financial Index Fund, VFH, is a new ETF where I put all the money from those other banks being sold. So it gets me diversified with a lot of other financial institutions, and it also pays a quarterly dividend. In utilities, I have $7,600 invested. It's mostly spread across these four companies, Dominion Energy, NextEra Energy, the Southern Company, and Duke Energy. All of these I plan on holding. I think they're all very strong companies. Out of the four, I think that NextEra is probably the best bet. It's the one that's moving most heavily into renewable energy. So I like this company a lot, but I like all these holdings. I don't plan on selling any of them. I introduced a Vanguard utility index fund. I might throw some money in this to give me exposure to smaller utility companies outside of these big four, but most of the money that I put into utilities will continue to go into these four companies. And then in telecom, I'm also in the red. That's entirely from AT&T. So the total value is $7,200. I only hold two companies in telecom, AT&T and Verizon. Verizon, I'm in the green by $230. AT&T, I'm down $743. So AT&T has been a company that investors continually sell out of It's reached a 10-year low recently, and there's not a lot of positive factors with this company. I don't plan on selling it right now, even though it is one of the weaker holdings, because it has consistent cash flow. It provides a really hefty dividend. It's at a very low valuation right now. So I'll continue to hold it, but I don't plan on adding to it aggressively. I'll just get the dividends from this company and invest it into other holdings. In industrials, we only have $2,300, and it's invested in two of the most boring companies, Union Pacific, which is a railroad company, and then Waste Management, which is a garbage company. It's not a bad company. I'm not saying that as a negative term. I'm saying it's literally a garbage company. Both of these are solid companies. I don't plan on making any changes to them. So that's it. That's the portfolio so far. If you want to see the exact allocation of everything, there's a link in the description. You just click on that and it opens up my current allocation. Now, another thing we can look at with my portfolio is my income growth over time. This graph shows month over month how much I've been paid in dividends. So it's very basic. I just add up how much I was paid in dividends for that month, and then it's plotted out here. This is since the beginning of my portfolio in January of 2018. And you can see that it has its up and downs over time. There's some months that are pretty high, some that are low, but overall it continues to trend in the same direction. Over the past few months, it's been a little bit chaotic. I've had some lower months, but that's mostly because I've been changing around my holdings The payout schedule is different on different holdings, but I expect this to continue to go up over time. I think going into the closing of this year, we'll have months over $350. Another graph we can look at is this one. This is the year over year growth. The pink bars represent 2018, and then the blue bars are 2019, and then of course the yellow bars are 2020. So you can see the growth over time. In October of 2018, I earned $52 in dividends. In October of 2019, I earned $184. And then in October of 2020, I earned $265. If you plotted this out as revenue growth for a company, this would be impressive. 
the company would be growing its revenue very quickly. So I like seeing the same thing happen with my finances. I'm hoping that I continue to beat these every single year and grow this revenue stream of dividends in my portfolio. And this website with all these graphs, of course, are available if you join the Patreon. So if you wanna try that out, again, there's a link in the description. Okay, let's move on and get to some questions. Joseph at josephcarlsonshow.com is the email address. That's joseph at josephcarlsonshow.com. The first one's from Jensen. He says, hi, Joseph, quick question. I wanted to get your thoughts on Apple being a main proponent of removing our right to repair the devices they sell to us, the customers. Just seeing all of their tactics of making their customers have to buy an entirely new device rather than perform simple fixes for cheaper than quoted doesn't sit well with me. I've seen people turn away from using Apple products for this reason and was wondering if you see this as a threat to the overall health of the company. Keep up the good work. Um, Yeah, I've seen this as a main complaint with Apple, Um, the right to repair. Apple makes it difficult to repair their devices or replace their devices. Android, for instance, is much more open to lots of different people repairing their devices. I think this comes from a different standpoint of Apple. I don't think this is about making money so much as ensuring the user experience. So Apple does everything they can, everything in their power to have a vertically integrated experience where they control everything from their end to the user's end. They want to control everything because if another company controls any part of the experience, it can be inferior and it can reflect poorly on Apple's brand. I can give the example of the Apple wireless router. Apple used to sell wireless routers and they discontinued it, even though I thought they worked pretty good. I had one myself for a while. It worked out um, fine for a router, but Apple cut off that product. And I think the reason why, in my opinion, they haven't confirmed this, but I speculate that the reason why was because Apple couldn't control the entire user experience. Since the wireless router was reliant on your internet service provider, many times people's internet would be poor or it would perform poor because of Comcast or a different internet service provider. And people would attribute that to Apple. They'd say my Apple wireless router doesn't work well. I'm not getting good internet. And Apple doesn't have the way of saying that's actually not our router, that's your internet service provider. So because of other companies, I think that Apple is getting their name hurt. They are getting their brand hurt by internet service providers. So they said, rather than damaging our brand, we're just not gonna offer this line of products. Unless we can control the internet as well, we don't want a faulty internet service provider to reflect poorly on our brand. So Apple does that all the time. They want to control everything beginning to end. You look at repairing a device and a lot of these third-party repair groups, they do a very sloppy job in repairing. A lot of the iPhone screens that you can get aftermarket are not nearly as good as the Apple screen. So if you go and you pay somebody a cheaper amount to repair your screen, they install a screen that's not as good, it doesn't have all the same features as the original Apple screen, it doesn't have the same quality, and you're using your phone and it's a little bit more laggy, the screen doesn't work quite as well, you might attribute that to Apple. That might hurt their branding because of this third-party repair. You might think the repair went fine, but this is just kind of how iPhones work. So I think Apple is obsessed about making sure that they control the entire user experience, that they don't have third parties doing repairs that aren't up to their standards and having that reflect poorly on their brand. They'd rather say, if you want to repair our devices, you need to be certified by us to be able to repair them so that they're up to our quality, so it doesn't reflect poorly on our brand. And I think the big debate here is whether they have the right to do that. I don't think that they can prevent people from going in and repairing the devices, but I think they're trying to say, 
If you're going to go and get your devices repaired by some third party that's not approved by us, that doesn't have our standards, and they do a really bad job at it, if they screw up the device even more, we're not going to warranty that. If they go in and damage the device even more than what it was, we don't want to stand by that product. So I think that's Apple's argument. Obviously, there's huge debates going on with this. It's actually a very hot topic debated with Apple, but um, I can see where Apple's coming from. They want to have every single device up to their standard because they are obsessive about user experience. It's part of the reason they want to control every single app that gets on the App Store. They have so many quality control measures of that. And I think it's the same thing with repairs. They want everybody to have their device repaired up to their standards. Where the rights come in and what people can do and how Apple warranties these products is up for debate, but I can see where they're coming from. M says, howdy, Joseph. I've been pretty hungry on learning more about investing strategies and terms lately. One such strategy is, quote, buy low and sell high slash hold. Well, M, I think that's that's generally the basis of investing. But anyway, you say, so I thought, well, when is it at its lowest? When the market drops? I've read terms like stocks on sale or discounted. Is there a way to tell or alert you when they do? There's lots of questions in that I know. And of course, thank you for the content. It really changed the way I focus on my finances. Well, I'm glad I could put more of a focus on finances. Like I said, these current events that go on, they change all the time. But if you put emphasis on your finances, I think it has a much longer lasting positive impact on your your life. So um, to answer your question, trying to find companies on sale and buy good companies at specific times, I think is mostly a losing game. And I say that as somebody that I consider myself a a person that tries to find value in companies. I want to buy them at good times. I don't want to overpay for them. But when I look at history, it's very difficult to try to buy good companies during a discounted time. It's very difficult to do. If you're looking for bottom barrel uh, deals on companies, a lot of times I think you end up with companies that are value traps. There's a reason that companies trade at very low P.E. ratios while the rest of the market is trading at high P.E. ratios. If you just focused on companies that are ultra low P.E. ratios or price to sale or whatever valuation metric you want to look at, you end up with companies like Simon Property and AT&T. Those are both value buys right now. Those are both low valued companies. But has Simon Property and AT&T been good investments? No, they haven't been great investments for a number of years. So when I look at it, you can't look at just these type of metrics to see what's a good value. You also have to incorporate the future of the economy, the future direction that people behave and people consume content, consume products, the way that they transfer money. Look at the way that commerce is going in general and try to look at the companies that are going to be able to take advantage of that the most. A lot of these ones are already priced really high. There are a lot of tech companies Um, There are a lot of content creation companies. They're the ones that people are putting their money in the most. But these companies, even though they might not fit with being on sale or being discounted, if they're going to grow for another 10 years, buying them right now is probably not a bad deal. So I would focus less on trying to get alerts when a company enters a specific PE ratio. If a company's under a 15 PE ratio, that does not mean it's a good buy. In and of itself, that does not mean it's a steal. There's a reason investors are discounting it. So instead of focusing on that, look at the companies that you think will be the winners over the next 10 years. I say just dollar cost average into the companies you think will be the winners. The next one's from Anonymous living in Hong Kong. 
He says, I wanted to email you and say thank you for all the wonderful content you put on your videos. I've learned so much about investing from you. Thanks to you, I finally had the confidence to invest in April, was able to get some really great companies at great value. I now have 35 companies in my portfolio. My question to you is, do you think having 35 companies is too many? What do you recommend is a good number to have in a portfolio? I'm going to keep adding to my portfolio whenever I can. Um, This is something that I've uh, I've adapted my portfolio. When I started off two years ago, I was very excited to buy every company that I really liked. And I had like 60 companies to start with. Not the best strategy, in my opinion. Now, since then, I've continually trimmed my positions and focused on higher conviction bets. And I think that that's what people should generally be doing. Out of your 35 companies, there's probably a good amount of them that you really don't understand the businesses all that well. Not most people have the ability to understand 35 different businesses in different categories on an in-depth level. But out of those, there's probably ones that you really do have a good grasp on, that you're much more comfortable in looking at the business and how it's doing, and it's easier for you to do analysis on it. So what I would do is I would keep the companies that you feel the most comfortable investing in, the ones that you have the highest level of knowledge on, and I would keep those as individual holdings, and then I would introduce ETFs to give you exposure to the sectors that you don't have as much knowledge over. That's exactly what I've been doing with my portfolio. In the healthcare sector, I realized that I want to have exposure to it. I think these companies are really good companies. They're going to be around for the long term. Everybody needs healthcare and pharmaceuticals. But I just don't understand the industry that well. I don't understand clinical trials and how they go through and do all this stuff. So I thought I need to follow Peter Lynch's advice and invest in what I know. And I really don't know healthcare companies that well. So even though I don't know them well, but I still want exposure, there's a way that you can accomplish both of those things. ETFs. If you want to invest where you don't know something well, but you want exposure, use an ETF. If you have a good knowledge or good competency of a certain sector, um, I feel like I'm much more knowledgeable about tech, then you can start picking out individual companies that you want to give a higher conviction bet on and that you want to give more exposure to. So that's kind of the route that I've been taking, where if it's outside of my circle of competence, if I don't feel like I can really grasp the companies, then I'm going to do that through ETFs. If they're companies that I really feel like I know in depth, I'm going to do that with individual holdings. In general, I think 35 is about the max amount of holdings you should have for an individual investor. I think the sweet spot is around 20 to 30. I think that's a really good portfolio. I don't think it's good to have two or three holdings of individual companies. Some people feel like they have to have that concentrated of a portfolio. That might be good if you're working with a small amount of money and you really want to do some big bets. But for bigger portfolios, I think it's better to have a little bit more diversified. So um, around 20 to 25 holdings, I think is probably a, a good place for most people. Robert says, what program do you use to look at your portfolio? Great show. I am using Charles Schwab app on my phone right now. I'm a new investor here, loving the information for the long term. Thank you for your time. Well, Robert, I appreciate the compliments on the channel. I'm using a broker called M1 Finance. There's a link in the description of this video to their website, but it's one of these newer brokers that can do some pretty cool things. So they're building out a lot of different features as well. They have a checking account. Um, They have automated investments now. That's something I've been setting up in my portfolio so that I have money that flows into a checking account and then it overflows into my investments. It's pretty cool some of the stuff they're doing. So it's a smaller company. It's not as big as Vanguard or Schwab by any means, but it's one of these newer fintech brokerages that I really like. Okay, well, I'm going to go ahead and leave it there. I appreciate everybody for tuning in. 
I had a lot of episodes I wanted to do this week, but it just didn't feel right to come out with these non-related to politics episodes right when we're having a huge general elections. It just didn't feel like the right time. So I have a lot of content that I'll be coming out with this next week that I think will be fun to discuss. So if you want to see that, hit the subscribe button and the little notification. Uh, That always helps out the channel, as well as keep in mind that we're on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. So, So go subscribe there as well and you get this in audio format. Otherwise, I will see you guys next time.